Welcome to Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast, episode number four, Where is the Love? Recorded Sunday, October 8, 2006. Show notes for this episode can be found at www.uncontrolledairspace.com. Nothing like sitting in the cabin of a jet simulator as it fills with smoke to bring out a latent claustrophobia. Closest I ever came to running out of gas, a buddy and I were so deadbeat tired, we filled up the tank thinking that we had 45 minutes of gas to discover that we had like two gallons. Where's the love? Where's the love? I never know what words to use to begin this whole thing off, you know? I should just like uh, have some sort clear of... Prop. <laughs> clear prop. Clear <laughs> prop. Well, here we are, folks, with uh, episode number four of Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. We have here in the virtual hangar Jeb Burnside, the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine, and also with Web Biz. He's in Springfield, Virginia. Hi, Jeb. Hi. Good afternoon to you all. And aviation photographer and freelance journalist from Wichita, Kansas, Dave Higdon is with us. Hi, Dave. Hello, everybody. So we're back here with episode number four. Uh, how's everybody doing out there in the world? What's going on? Dave, you've been really busy this past week. We're actually recording this podcast a little bit later than we had originally scheduled because Dave's been having so much fun uh, with something that we're going to talk about a little bit later on. But uh, um, are things getting back to normal for you? As much as I can call the life that, uh, that this is normal, yeah, it's back to a little bit closer to routine for maybe three or four days and then we get into the chaos of NBAA preparation. So the relative normalcy is probably going to last about 72 hours, and then we'll be back to the chaos that we love and enjoy so much. NBAA, for anybody not in the know, is the uh, it's the National Business Aviation Association. Do I have that correct. right? That's correct. correct. That's correct. And they have their big convention uh, this year down in Florida, Orlando, I believe. Orange County Convention Center, and the dates. Uh, October 17, 18, 19, it is the world's largest purely civil uh, aviation trade show. It's coming up a week after, we're recording this on Sunday afternoon, uh, it's coming up not this week but the following week, right? That's correct. That's and, correct. And both of you guys are going to be down there. Yes, we both will be down there. Now we're trying to coordinate uh, for us to record at least your portion of the podcast that episode while you're down there, and possibly with a guest uh, who you bring on to the show from down there. But we're trying to work that out. I don't want to make any promises to our audience. Yeah. But uh, but uh, we certainly will have some interesting reports uh, in the podcast that follows immediately after that, uh, directly from the, uh, the association gathering down there. Jeb, what are you up to these days? I know you're pretty busy, too. Yeah, uh, busy time of month for me, uh, putting the finishing touches on the magazine. Uh, my uh, uh, workload has been compounded by having contracted what I call flumonia about a week and a half ago and still trying to get over it. And as a consequence, I've been staying kind of close to the desk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I don't have a whole lot to report from uh, field trips and things like that. That's okay. I hope you're feeling better. I am. Thank you. Moving on into the stories of the uh, of the week, uh, first of all, a little quick update, something that we talked about, about a lot last time, and that is uh, the nomination and now confirmation of Mary Peters to be the Secretary of Transportation. Uh, that apparently did happen. It happened very quietly. I don't know whether it was just me, but there just wasn't a lot of press or whatever. It, it did happen relatively uh, I won't say silently, but certainly smoothly and without a great deal of fanfare. Did you hear or... Given all the other 
given all the other chaos that was going on inside Disneyland East, that is the Beltway, uh, it's really hard for a story like Mary Peter's confirmation to rise above the background down of... What I wanted to know was whether anybody asked her during the confirmation hearings about things like user fees. Uh, have you seen a transcript or heard any news stories? I have not. I suspect that they did, but I suspect also that uh, many of those answers were the canned administration position and or submitted to, you know, in writing after the hearing concluded. Yeah. We should try and dig up a copy of the transcript and uh, uh, see. That's easy it, it'd, be, it'd be curious to see what the words were in any event. Uh, if we find at, that, uh, we'll we'll put a link to it on our website. And uh, at, we, at the end of the day, all of that is is pretty much irrelevant. Uh, I mean, I, I know everything I need to know about Mary Peters by who nominated her for that position. So uh, it, it's it's uh, it's almost irrelevant. Dave, well, the, uh, yeah, go ahead, Dave. The universal feedback uh, from the uh, trade association executives uh, on, on my call list has been that uh, she's bright, she's personable, she's conversant, she's eager to learn, she's uh, willing to sit down and listen, and everybody is you know queued up to get their turn with the new secretary to make their puts about user fees and, and other pet issues. And one of my department sources tells me that basically every briefing book that she's got from the FAA on different issues all comes back to, all uh, refer to the need for a new funding mechanism, but she's not indicated to anybody yet that she's convinced that user fees are the way to go. She's expressing uh, an open mind, they tell me. That's a good thing right at the moment because the uh, the, the good folks at the Air Transport Association are, are unrelenting in their desire to, uh, as, as one executive puts it, finally after 20 years of being shot down, push through this idea once and for all. As one fellow put it to me, says, only in Washington, D.C. can you take an idea that's been defeated repeatedly for 20 years and think that now is a good time to push it through just because it's been defeated in the past. That's the environment that general aviation is facing with this outfit right now. It's yeah. not going away, uh, and it's certainly not any safer right now because we've got a little window with the new Secretary of Transportation. What's that old saying? It's the uh, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. Is one definition uh, of insanity for sure. Absolutely, and, and, and the interesting thing is that there's almost universal evidence, information, studies from the uh, uh, Government Accountability Office, from uh, the Congressional Budget Office, all across the board, that the trust fund is not going broke, that the trust fund is generating enough funds to support the expansion and modernization that's needed. The only people singing the song that we're going broke, we need a better funding mechanism are the folks over at FAA and ATA. Uh, and in any tell event, us something about the picture. And in any event, all one would need to do to make the numbers come out even if they were uneven to begin with is enact some slight increases in the existing user taxes. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's, that's a no-brainer. Rather than set up some huge new bureaucracy to uh, administer user fees. As, as Dave uh, pointed out, uh, the, the Disneyland East aspects of this uh, are uh, quite substantial. Yeah. It, it's just another shell game. It's another one of those topics we're going to be talking about for a long time to come. So, uh, yeah, we don't want to we don't want to let it dominate this one. It'll just get uglier by the moment. <laughs> Moving on, probably the biggest aviation story in the news over the recent days was this uh, midair that resulted in an airliner crash down in Brazil. 
I mean, there's just, it doesn't appear that anybody really knows exactly what happened. So I suppose we can add our, you know, lack of knowledge to the pile here. Um, for folks not up on the story, um, a blank... Well, let's, let's, yeah, the 737-800 operated by a, a domestic Brazilian carrier, I think the name is Gold, G-O-L, crashed uh, in the Amazon jungle, um, 155 people on board, all dead. Working it backwards, uh, there is an... Apparently, that 7-3 clipped a Embraer legacy business jet on its basically delivery flight over at about uh, 37,000 feet, flight level 370, over uh, in Brazilian airspace. The um, legacy uh, was just purchased by a, a U.S. company and, and was uh, on first of probably a two or three leg flight to get it back to the United States. Two uh, American uh, U.S. certificated pilots in the cockpit, five passengers on board, cruising along, I won't say fat, dumb, and happy, but cruising along without any issues, and there's a bump, and they look out, and they're missing part of their uh, uh, wingtip, and uh, subsequently discover they're missing part of the horizontal stabilizer. Brazilian authorities, they, I'm sorry, they, they, they made a successful emergency landing at the nearest military base, which is a uh, miracle in itself. A, a miracle in itself. Brazilian authorities have, have detained the two pilots. My word is detained. Uh, the Brazilian authorities say they're not being detained, but uh, so if you don't have your passport with you, the, the Brazilians are holding their passports. If you don't have your passport with you, you're being detained. Detention, uh, obviously, is part of the investigation. Two things the Brazilians are saying. One is that the, air, the Embraer was at the wrong altitude. It should have been at 360 and not 370 and that the transponder had been turned off on the, on the Embraer, both of which I find more than a little interesting. But uh, that's where things stand as, uh, uh, as of yesterday, anyway, the last uh, lengthy, detailed news report I saw on the matter. Well, unless I heard, unless Brazil has changed its operating uh, rules to be radically different than the United States, that flight level differentiation is sometimes at the discretion of the controller. Uh -huh. Number of times flying uh, certain routes here in the United States, it's been more convenient for the controller to have me at the wrong altitude in an instrument environment or on an instrument flight plan. So where I should have been at 11, I was at 10 or 12. Right. That was their request. That was their instruction. That was my my flight altitude for a brief period of time. So there's a lot of unanswered questions here yet. Having worked and traveled in that part of the world briefly some years ago, just the fact that the legacy crew was able to find a place to put that jet down at all is something of a miracle in itself. It was more than 100 miles from where the impact happened. Yeah. For those who would want to uh, go back and research it, uh, there was a first-person account written by a passenger who uh, happens to be a travel reporter uh, that appeared in the New York Times earlier this week. The web version of that story also included a photograph taken on the ground after the aircraft, after the Embraer landed of the damage to the wing and to the horizontal stabilizer. The, uh, the I think the interesting thing here, at least from, from where I sit as, as uh, someone who pays attention to these kinds of things. The airspace, early reports anyway, indicated that the airspace was not under the control of 
a single air, air traffic control facility that instead there were two different Brazilian facilities responsible for that particular airspace and it seems fairly likely when all the shouting is done if indeed uh, it will ever be done that there was some overlap of responsibility and someone in air traffic control in Brazil dropped this ball. Mm -hmm. Okay. It, it's, uh, it's unconscionable, uh, unheard of I should say for me for, for uh, a professional flight crew to switch off a transponder. There's just no reason for that and ATC would have noticed that. They would have said something. So what's yeah, they, on the tapes will be very, extremely interesting. Somebody would have been calling the legacy saying, uh, we've lost your squawk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, now, have we heard anything back yet on the uh, like the cockpit voice recorder or the data recorders yet? No, we we haven't. Um, Do we know they were recovered uh, from the from the Embraer? Much. No, from the from the from the from the Boeing. Um, unclear at this point. I have not seen anything definitive on that question. The only thing I've really seen is is that they're still pulling bodies out of the crash site. The crash site itself, I understand, to be something like uh, 500 yards in diameter. Yeah, pretty small. Well, it's small on one hand, uh, all things considered, but also perhaps indicative that maybe the airplane came apart before it hit the ground. There have been a number of aircraft over the years that have, have kind of gone straight in or, or uh, uh, relatively straight in, and, and those those crash sites were much, much smaller diameters. Oh, okay. Yeah, 1,500 um, feet's not a small debris field. Not, not at all. We're talking a quarter mile, more than a quarter mile. If you look at, for example, U.S. Air 427 that went in uh, one of the, the 737 rollover accidents that went in, I believe, on approach to Pittsburgh, as one example, its crash uh, site was, was much, much smaller. Now we're truly moving into the realm of speculation here, but I'm really curious about trying to imagine the sort of damage that the 737 could have taken, you know, given the damage we saw on the, on the small jet. You know, wh what could have happened to the 737 that would take it down? Uh, clip the, the vertical stabilizer or, or damage it in some fashion or severe damage to, to uh, I think in this case, perhaps the left wing, given the damage to the Embraer, broken or weakened spar, damaged flight controls, hydraulic uh, problems, all kinds of things. It's, it's clearly going to be a, a very interesting investigation. There are NTSB uh, staff people participating in that investigation, but it will be very interesting to, to try to, if they can in fact determine what happened to the 7-3, what damage it sustained, and, and what in fact caused it to go for, the, for its crew to lose control and for the aircraft to crash. My final question on this subject is, uh, is there any lesson learned yet, or, or will there be any lessons to be learned here about U.S. pilots flying in foreign countries? That's a very good question, and uh, I haven't really gotten my arms around that one yet. I, I think the the first lesson, perhaps, is that um, in uh, countries other than the United States and perhaps Canada and, and a couple of the European countries, anything that a pilot does can take on much, much greater implications if the country in which that event occurs wants to make it so.
wants Always to make it a, yeah wants to make it a problem uh you you, you don't have the uh for ill or for good i, I tend to think it's a, a good thing the ntsb and, and uh, the faa here in the united states typically uh, typically there are very almost never do you hear of criminal charges coming out of an air, aviation accident or, or uh, incident You'll, you'll get enforcement actions coming out of them, perhaps, from the FAA, but never will there be uh, charges brought against a crew in, on, uh, for manslaughter, for example, which is the case, uh, potential case in this Brazilian accident. Well, uh, in most cases here in the United States, what, what we face is a, uh, is, a, is a crew error, a pilot error, or some kind of judgment mistake. What's got the Brazilians really in an uproar right now is this prospect and I don't want to call it any more than that but this prospect based on a report that the transponder was turned off mm-hmm. turned the transponder off is an overt act that yeah. is in violation of the regs and they're going to criminalize that in the name of 155 victims mm-hmm. if they can prove it so yeah there's there's also the the issue of whether or not the Embraer was at the correct altitude I think the the Brazilian line would go. Uh, they wanted to fly at a different altitude, so they turned the transponder off and climbed to that altitude. But that doesn't it just doesn't make any sense because we're only talking a thousand feet difference, and there's no performance, there's no measurable performance or efficiency gain uh, with that extra thousand feet. It doesn't. It just doesn't make sense that a well, and unless they were in an environment where there was no radar coverage. Right. ATC is going to notice that in the second sweep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. Well, more when we know more, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Stay tuned. This one's not going away anytime <laughs> soon. As I mentioned earlier, the uh, National Business Aviation Association is coming up a week after next, and uh, we've sort of talked about it fleetingly over the past couple episodes. But I'm wondering if you guys have anything to say about you know what you're expecting to see uh, or hear about uh, this time. Well, I, I'll let Dave certainly speak for himself. I'm expecting all VLJs all the time, and I'm also expecting, uh, as we touched on earlier, a major pushback and perhaps a couple of policy announcements relative to uh, uh, user fees. Well, first off, keep your eyes on the folks from Duluth, because Uh the CRI will be there with their personal jet. We don't have details on configuration or power plant or panel yet, but we do know that they're going to be announcing their version of a uh, single-engine jet at NBAA. this Uh This is Cirrus? Cirrus Aircraft. Uh, It was a little over a year ago that that, uh, Alan Klepmeyer answered a question at AOPA Expo about Cirrus building a very light jet. He looked the crowd directly in the eye collectively and said, no, Cirrus is definitively not interested in building a very light jet. And then he paused and he waited for the drum beat and he said, now ask me about a personal jet. Well, that's plan has been uh, has been brought along far enough that we're going to see the uh, we're going to see the fruits of it here when NBAA opens in a little over 10 days we'll also get to see some details on the new Piper jet that's in the pipeline it's going to be an interesting uh, going to be an interesting prospect because uh, they talked a little bit to the um, 
how do you do this Malibu Mirage and Meridian Owners and Pilots Association meeting out in Colorado a few weeks ago but we're looking at another single engine jet here from uh, from the good folks in Vero Beach uh, it will be somewhat in the same nature and in, in, in uh, cabin capacity as the Meridian but by necessity will be more new airplane than carryover from the existing airplane and Piper's got a little bit of a narrow track to walk here because uh, we'll also be learning more about uh, Piper's agreement to market the Honda jet, which will be making its first appearance at NBAA when it opens up. Piper's going to be the marketing and support organization for that program. So their new jet, by necessity, has to somewhat stay clear of the market that the Honda is, uh, is tackling. Mm-hmm. But there's plenty of room, and there's plenty of room in here. The uh, Piper jet we're hearing will be in the two million dollar range, bigger than the Cirrus, smaller than the Honda. The uh, Cirrus jet will be sub one million dollars. We're being told, hmm. and another single engine. Won't be surprised to also see uh, Bombardier's receive the type certificate for its 605 Challenger. That's the latest in a long line of Challengers. And we're expecting one, maybe two announcements out of Big C, Cessna Aircraft, in the Citation line. Uh, And there's some very heavy network chatter right now that we could see a major shakeup in the avionics supplier for Cessna's entire Citation line, except the Mustang. It's looking like the days of them splitting among different suppliers might be coming to an end, and they're going to focus primarily on equipping all their larger jets with with panels from Collins. That won't be good news, if true, for uh, the folks at Honeywell, but that seems to be the uh, way things are going. So, NBAA coming up in a couple of weeks. We're going to try and uh, record uh, your guys' end of the podcast from, from down there. If you're at all interested in or part of or involved in business aviation, corporate aviation, or want to be, uh, even if you you're can, not, even you if could you're do not, worse. Yeah, I, I would I would suggest that anyone who has the means and the uh, the time to get down to Orlando, 17, 18, 19 of October, that uh, they do so. Anybody who's interested in aviation uh, uh, generally, there's a lot of uh, just non you know. Typically, NBAA is thought of as the corporate drivers and the heavy iron drivers and things like that, and they certainly certainly fulfill that role. But there's a lot of uh, interesting things. There's a lot of uh, tire kicking that just the average general aviation pilot or aircraft owner would find interesting and educational. And I would strongly encourage anyone with an interest in the time to get down there. Just the just the just the freebie knickknacks that you can pick oh, up in yeah. three days down yeah. there can make the trip worth a long. Exactly right. Ballpoint pens to last the whole next year. Uh, That's right. I don't know what I would do next time I have to copy down in clearance if it wasn't for NBAA. <laughs> <laughs> last time uh, we read a whole bunch of glowing emails from listeners uh, about how much they loved us, and uh, we appreciate that kind of thing. This this time we got one email in particular that was interesting because uh, uh, this particular listener took exception to a few of the things that we were talking about last time. Where's and, the love? Where's the love? Let me preface this whole thing by saying that we, we truly do appreciate even these kind of critical correcting emails. We're Although we are somewhat knowledgeable about the aviation industry, we're doing this podcast 
off the top of our head, so to speak. Uh, we don't do a lot of, of intensive fact-checking and research in order to do this presentation. As a result, some errors can creep in, some areas that we're not completely up to speed on, or we might misspeak. We might work from old information. Yeah. So we welcome this kind of feedback. Uh, we truly do, and we, uh, we thank this particular listener for sending in this email. He's asked us not to say his name in the podcast because he apparently works in one of the industries we were talking about, and that's okay, so we'll just refer to him as the listener. Two of the things that he corrected us on or, or talked about in his email we wanted to touch on. Uh, the first was the reality of the Meigs fine, the closure of Meigs Field. Uh, did you guys want to talk about this? or? Um... Well, I think we, we said something to the effect that the, the fine levied by the FAA was a slap on the wrist. Uh, I think, and I, I apologize, I uh, don't have the numbers in front of me. Uh, I think we were talking about thirty, $33,000 fine, and then there were some additional penalties the FAA managed to levy, uh, bringing the total up to slightly over $1 million. And I think our comments had to do with the, uh, the relatively small or insignificant amount of the fine. Uh, our reader, our listener, I should say, respondent, uh, correctly pointed out that since Meg's closure, Congress and the FAA working together had increased the fines on municipalities or any, any airport sponsor that would arbitrarily close an airport. And we certainly would want to make that correction known for the record. Now, according to the listener, instead of being $1,000 a day, which is what we thought it was or what it was, in fact, for the MIGS occurrence, the fine is now $10,000 a day. That's so, correct. And We'd heard that, we knew it, but in the yeah. uh, exasperation of Meg's coming back up again, it just went out of our heads like, you know, like like one too many flight clearance changes in a day. And then he also talked about NGATs. We talked a bit about that. We, we were a bit cynical about it, and, and I don't think we're ashamed of the fact that we were a bit cynical about it. And, and and not repentant about being a little cynical about it. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, the listener wrote, uh, and I'm summarizing here, we bemoan the fact that this was going to require new equipment for all or mo almost all GA aircraft, and he insists that that's not necessarily the case, that only people who fly into Class Bravo airspace would need it, and he said, which they don't do very much. One of the lines from his email was, they being most GA aircraft, they have little need to participate in Class Bravo airspace and are seldom given landing slots at larger fields like IAD. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's somewhat true to a point. My logbook is got dozens, dozens of uh, uh, ventures into Class Bravo airspace, not sure. to land at the Bravo airport, not to land at the one in the center of the Bravo, but to land at one of the sometimes a dozen plus airports that fall under the mode C veil or inside one of the layers of the wedding cake, which requires the equipment and a clearance. And it's done a lot more than I think the, the, the listener was uh, crediting us for. Yeah, I would, I would add in my personal situation, I'm based in an airport that is, is under the veil, uh, under the tier, I should say, of a Bravo, uh, certainly within the 30 mile mode C veil and not coincidentally uh, inside the Washington ADIS, the Air, Air Defense Identification Zone. So it, it's certainly of interest to me. And, and like Dave, uh, my logbook has an, any number of entries in it 
uh, involving flights to and from airports within Bravo, in some cases the, the Bravo Airport at, in various locations around the country. So, and Last I checked, there were only four airports where there was capacity controls that required the issuance of an advanced slot. Dulles is not one of them. Dulles is not one of them. Kansas City International is not one of them. Dallas-Fort Worth is not one of them. Denver International is not one of them. Charlotte is uh, not one of them. Charlotte is not one of them. So, you know, while we'll, we'll take our chastising for yeah. uh, a little and, bit and, of and, stating. And, and, we're, we're, and, we're not relinquishing the argument completely. Right. I would not want someone to, to draw the conclusion that we're vociferously reacting uh, to the criticism. That's, that's not the case. The listener... Uh, is correct in, in what he, he pointed out to us, and we're, we're appreciative of the feedback, and we would certainly want any any other listeners to give us identical feedback. Absolutely. Um, I guess our point in response is that while, I, I think two points, while the, the listener is absolutely correct, there are mitigating factors. And to make a blanket statement that the average GA pilot uh, doesn't use that airspace is is not uh, one that I would make. I think the second point, though, is that anyone involved in the uh, industry uh, segment involved with developing and, and perhaps implementing NGATs down the road needs to be aware that this is a common perception among most GA pilots. The perception being that uh, it's going to require equipment equipment investments by GA operators. Uh, for not a, a much in, in the way of utility. And as a consequence, GA operators are not going to embrace the technology unless or until there are benefits that accrue to us. So the industry needs to come to grips with that, and they need to come up with some method to explain this technology to us operators a little bit better if they want us to buy into it. Well, and, and at the end of the day, we need the actual plan, and in this lifetime would be good, which is another area where not really being good at looking like Papa Smurf, I'm not holding my breath. For well, you know, I, I don't want to get off on a rant here, but Dave and I both have, have sat through, in terminal briefings, we've sat through figuratively being patted on the head by uh, either government or industry over the last 20, 25 years saying we're going to, this won't hurt a bit and we're going to make things so seamless, all this automation equipment coming online is going to make your life so much more easy and none of it ever happens. None of it comes through as it's, as it's designed to, none of it comes through as it's been pitched by government or industry and I will not apologize for coming through the door being a little bit skeptical. And I don't think Dave would either. I don't want to put words in his mouth. All right. Well. So there you go. Okay. Once again, uh, <laughs> this response not, not that we're opinionated or anything. This response notwithstanding, keep those cards and letters coming in. Um, uh, and, and, and again, I, I, I uh, would reiterate my comment that uh, we're, we're very appreciative of this this uh, listener uh, getting back to us and, and giving us some feedback. And if he listens to this podcast. We would hope to learn more from him about NGAS and some of the technologies uh, on which he's working and perhaps invite him or, or uh, uh, someone with whom he is working to, to uh, be a guest on the podcast in the future. I think that's a terrific idea. We should look into that.
Moving on. Uh, let's see now. I wanted to plug a podcast. One that I've been enjoying a lot over the recent days is an aviation podcast called Pilot Cast. Uh, and uh, Pilot Cast is uh, one of the most, at least according to the iTunes Store, one of the most popular podcasts in the aviation category. It's uh, another roundtable sort of hangar flying thing like we're doing here. Pilots Dan, Mike, and Kent, that's all they identify themselves by their first names. Dan, Kent's Mike, convenient. and Kent, uh, they do this uh, weekly, roughly weekly, give or take, uh, hangar flying podcast. They've been doing it for a little bit over a year now. Uh, they have about 44 episodes uh, available online. And uh, it's a lot of fun. Where where we're you know sort of try to be working in the industry, they're a little bit more along the lines of just pilot folks, uh, GA pilot folks, and uh, they also uh, intermix their sort of off the cuff conversation with recorded interviews. They, for example, recorded a bunch of interviews um, with some really interesting people while they were at Oshkosh this summer, mm. and they've been been dropping bits and pieces of those into their podcast since coming back. So uh, good for them. PilotCast. Cool. You can you can listen to PilotCast by going to pilotcast.com or by looking it up on uh, one of the podcasting directories. One, I, I have to call attention to one particular podcast I did, which was very different from all their others, but I just found it oddly riveting, and that is when Kent flew into Oshkosh this year. This was the first time he flew in using the Rip and Fisk procedures and the whole thing. He basically connected an audio recorder to his airplane intercom Very uh, cool. and turned it on just as he came uh, came across onto the shoreline um, off of Lake Michigan. He's, and, and recorded his whole thing. He was just like talking to us as he goes. He says, well, there's uh, Lake Winnebago off to the right, and there's this, and now I'm there. And you could hear the, the controllers talking to him, and you could hear the other aircraft talking to the controllers. It was just fairly riveting uh, for uh, for me anyways. I, I enjoyed mm. it a lot. And uh, it was about a little bit over an hour long. Um, it was from the time, like I said, he got uh, feet dry off of Lake Michigan. He was on IFR to begin with, and he canceled IFR and flew over to... Uh, to uh, Fisk and or Rippin, I guess, and uh, join the procedure and talked his way. It was pretty fascinating, and that's one of their podcasts. Um, uh, it's uh, I forget which one, like uh, episode forty or something like that. And uh, you can find it if you go to their website, pilotcast we'll pilotcast.com. Uh, that's my pod aviation podcast of the week. Dave, you spent the last week uh, fairly intensely involved in the uh, what is it, the Bombardier safety stand down. You want to tell us about that? Safety Stand Down, the 10th annual Bombardier Learjet, uh, under the auspices of their chief demonstration pilot, Bob Agostino, started an in-house safety stand down because they noticed that aviation accidents, business aviation accidents, were running along the same trend. This was 1996 when this began. It was an in-house exercise only. They basically stopped flying for a week, sat down with some experts, listened to some lectures, got to ask some questions, uh, focused on the human element here, on knowledge-based training. That's the thrust. This isn't a bunch of sim time. It's not textbooks about the airplane. It's not how you handle emergency procedures in one aircraft or another. It's strictly brain exercise. This year was the 10th. They opened it up to the public in, night, uh, in 2000. Since then, it has ballooned from under 100 pilots to more than 950 applicants this year, wow. of which they were only able to accept 460. Hmm. And it is one of the most intense, most useful bits of time um, 
that I've ever spent in pilot training, particularly away from an aircraft. We have two days of workshops that are provided by Bombardier Learjet. These workshops are all hands-on. You participate uh, just like you would in the world. They include uh, water ditching training uh, with a dunker chair. Uh, you do it blind. Life raft training. This is all in a swimming pool. Life raft training. They have cabin simulators from Fax Inc., a training company, and they do smoke-filled cabins, water ditching, uh, land ditching, depressurization where the mass drop down, using different window exits in different scenarios. Nothing like sitting in the closed cabin of a business jet simulator as it fills with smoke to bring out any of the latent claustrophobia that you might have. I know it does for me. There's hands-on training for in-flight medical emergencies. CPR, how to use CPR tools, automatic electronic defibrillators, little tricks like putting backing boards behind people if you've got to lay them down in a seat while you're doing CPR so the compression is actually effective for the chest and doesn't just transfer to the seat. The uh, final unit is in hands-on practice with fire extinguishers uh, on a fuel fire that's done in uh, an area outside the uh, the, the Hyatt Hotel here in Wichita where the uh, safety stand-down is held. That's the first two days. The second two days are a series of lectures and talks from human factors experts, from fatigue and rest experts, from psychologists, from medical doctors, all geared to help you think through emergencies, think about when you shouldn't fly, think about when you should make a new decision. There's uh, plenty of Q&A time, but it is a little bit like drinking from a fire hose, even with two days sitting in the room. The briefing book that accompanies the uh, lectures is approximately four inches thick and has all the PowerPoint slides for all the presenters. It's in it's intense. It's riveting. It's not the kind of boring stuff like Jeb was alluding to a little earlier when, about the briefings we've sat through with FAA and DOT and, and different agencies in the government. This stuff keeps you listening because it's your life they're talking about saving, your life and the lives of all the people behind you. The really remarkable thing in my mind is that, A, this is not a, an event limited to customers of Bombardier or Learjet. About 40% of the attendees operate Bombardier aircraft. The other 60% are all over the map. Second, they have representatives from several government agencies and several governments overseas attend this. Uh, they come up as far as the uh, as Indonesia for this. Third, it's free. Hmm. Bombardier has operated this for the last 10 years at no cost to the participants. And this year, to help enhance the experience, some the uh, Federal Aviation Administration and the National Business Aviation Association signed on as sponsors and helped underwrite some of the social events, some of the meals, and some of the cost of some of the presenters. For me, the highlight of this event every year that I've been able to attend is meeting the pilots that come from all over the map, from local Czech airmen that I've known and seen fly around the neighborhood to uh, 
corporate aircraft pilots and, and cabin crew as well. Cabin crew are also invited to this from different parts of Europe and Asia. Our closing banquet speaker this year was a gentleman that I've had the privilege of meeting and dining with in the past, last man to walk on the moon, Gene Cernan, mm. who uh, not only gives the closing talk, gives, gave the closing talk at dinner, but is one of the lecturers on professionalism because all these years after Apollo 17 returned from the moon, Gene is still an active pilot, flies a Cessna 421, is type rated in the Learjet 40 and 45, has his own consulting company, very vibrant, very active, and very much the professional pilot when it comes to sitting down in the left seat and doing what has to be done. Interesting. That sounds fascinating. If you ever have the opportunity, it's uh, not, probably not too early to keep your eyes open for opportunities to register for next October. Do you know how they work it? Do they is it is it a first come first serve or do they have a lottery or how how do they cuz you said there was 900 that applied and only 400 got in? They try to take uh they they, they keep lists and they cross reference from last year to this year and try to make sure that as many people as possible who were waitlisted last year are at the top of the list for getting in this year. Uh-huh. And they'll do the same thing there where people apply who've been before, they they get a lower priority if they came last year uh, compared to somebody that had not been before or who missed out the year before. Mm-hmm. Did you learn They anything? do encourage companies to rotate the people through. That is, you know, don't send the same two people back. And the main obligation Mr. Agostino imposes on the rest of us is to take what we learn, what we hear, and what we're taught back to our own pilot communities and our own hangars and spread the gospel of, of uh, knowledge-based training and human factors awareness and, and the need for us to be thinking pilots and not just automatons who repeat what we were taught in sim training. Mm-hmm. Say what, again, would you say, what would you say, Dave, is the, the, one of the main things you learned as a pilot from this episode? This year, the, the uh, element in the lecture series that struck home most was uh, rest cycles and fatigue because it brought back memories of a short cross country of about three hours and change from Oshkosh to Wichita, Kansas. I I, I resemble that. One crew member was asleep and the other crew member was barely able to keep his eyes open. I I don't know who you're talking about. The uh, elements on Part 67, which is the medical uh, regulations. The doctor put it, and the doctor, by the weird coincidence, is my own uh, M.E. here, Dr. Lawrence Lay, extremely dynamic, very interesting gentleman. He's a doctor. He's a Ph.D. in engineering. He's a CFI. He's an EMT. He does 2,000-odd medicals a year. The guy is, close to, is as close to a Renaissance man in aviation and medicine as anyone I've ever met. His discussions of why qualifying for your medical just means that you met Part 67. It doesn't mean you're healthy. Mm-hmm. And how being qualified and being healthy are two different elements that you've got away anytime you get into the cockpit. That was another one that stuck out a great deal in my mind because yeah. of the times when I'd been on the road too long and was coming down with something and opted to climb in the cockpit and fly home anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe not the wisest decision. 
Yeah, put it put it another way. Just because you've passed an FIA physical doesn't mean you've passed a real physical. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree uh, completely. Fatigue is just the, the the closest I ever came to running out of gas was uh, a buddy and I, and the, and the buddy was a way more experienced, qualified pilot than I, and the two of us were so dead beat tired flying home after a long day, and it was the middle of the night, and, and we filled up the tank thinking that we had like 45 minutes of gas left to discover that we had like two gallons of gas left. Mm. I mean, it was, yeah. it was scary because, you know, and we, were, we, just, we had basically lost the ability to do arithmetic when we looked back right. on it afterwards, that right. we just kept referring to the amount of how long we've been flying and how much range we thought we had. And, and, and it wasn't that we used the gas any faster because later on when we were awake, we did the arithmetic and said, wow, yeah, we did almost run out of gas. Um, we were just too tired to do simple arithmetic. Um, fatigue is 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 brutal, and you got to watch out it for is. it. It is. Well, the uh, little 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 things that just bubble up that you don't know, uh, that you'd never thought of. For example, halon fire extinguishers. Now, there's you know the the big uh, controversy over them being unhealthy for the atmosphere, unhealthy for human beings. But as the lecturer in in-flight firefighting explained to us, using enough halon in a closed space to extinguish a fire because of how quickly it dissipates is not life-threatening so if you got to use it in a closed cabin use it get the fire out then vent mm-hmm. actually having the hands-on experience of seeing and feeling and operating the extinguisher in the heat of the flames in your face and getting close enough to actually extinguish a fire with this gas that was very helpful in terms of building confidence that I'd be able to do that if the chips were down the water ditching and the life raft training in terms of physical demands, those were the two most sobering for me because the difficulty of maneuvering in and over the wall of a large life raft and the challenges of staying alive in it come home so much more graphically when you're in the water in trying to maneuver around the damn thing without Hmm. pushing off the floor. The water ditching done with blinders so that you can't see really jacked my adrenaline up to that point where had I been doing this for the first time out in open water in a real emergency I can't confidently say that I would have tried to swim in the right direction out of an inverted aircraft mm-hmm. but yeah. the uh, the two exercises that we did in the water with the dunking chair let my brain dial in to the fact that I have a few seconds. I've got to take those few seconds and use those few seconds to orient myself and determine which way is up mm-hmm. before I unbuckle the belt and start floating up into the wrong part of the cabin and then having to fight to get down and out a window or a door. I wouldn't want to have to do it, but my confidence in my ability to do it and survive right now is about a thousand percent better than it was before. Well, that sounds terrific. So that's the uh, the Bombardier Safety Stand Down. They so they hold it once a year, Dave. Is that correct? Once a year. In in Wichita, is it approximately this time of year? Next next year? It's generally in October. Uh, but true major tip of my hat to Bob Agostino and Rick Rowe and all the crew at Bombardier Learjet who spent a huge amount of their own personal time and effort preparing this. And my hat's off to Bombardier Corporate for continuing to support this in the manner that makes it available for free 
now you know there's no there's still a pretty good cost to the uh, to the operators who send their crew because Wichita airfare wise is not the easiest or cheapest place in the country to get to and you know a lot of these companies aren't about to tie up the company airplane they have it sit on the ramp for four or five days like it would have to mm-hmm. so they send their folks out by human mailing tube and then there's a hotel room and a couple of meals but by and large uh, other than a the meals ahead of and after, you're pretty well taken care of by the Bombardier folks and their uh, their co-sponsors, FAA and NT- uh, NBAA. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. We'll put a link to uh, some information about uh, the the program and hopefully next year's version of it um, on the website. So uh, yeah, take a look at that. Once again, we're starting to run out of time here. Let's see if we can uh, pick out any things we really want to talk about before we finish up. While you guys are looking at the list and thinking, I'm going to say that uh, I just wanted to call attention to the bittersweet uh, closure of Bader Field uh, yeah. in New Jersey, uh, which, and, and I confess that I have no familiarity with Bader Field other than reading the stories about it, and it might be just yet another sad story about an airport closing down. The thing that makes it particularly notable to me uh, is that this, according to legend anyways, is the field, the airfield, which the word airport was invented to describe. Uh, the way I heard the story was, way back in the early days of aviation, they created this airfield, and a newspaper reporter writing a story about it called it, uh, because a lot of aviation things, were they were coming up with nautical-related terms, they called it an airport, air-port, and, uh, and the word airport stuck as the name for these things where we take off and land airplanes. And Baderfield... Well, I think that, that the legend's helped along a whole lot by the fact that Baderfield sits right on the water there in Atlantic City. And it's a kind of a sad story on par with uh, Meg's Field. Mm-hmm. Uh, the local government there wasn't wild about the airport. They didn't want the airport. One mayor in particular tried desperately to close it for years. They wanted that real estate for other uses. And they finally got free of the obligations that had forced them to keep it open. Yeah. yeah. I, I, uh, I've been in Bader several times over the last, I don't know, 20 or so years. And. Uh, it was strangled, if you will. Its development, its uh, uh, maintenance uh, had been cut back drastically. The, the runways were, I think, less than 3,000 feet long, uh, not in very good condition. Uh, there were almost no facilities available, no fuel, as I recall. Certainly, the last time I was there, uh, you're, you're lucky if the payphone worked. But it was um, very, very close. Maybe five-minute cab ride to the casino strip there in Atlantic City. And, it was uh, picturesque. Yeah, yeah, it, it was very convenient. Um, it, it didn't have a whole lot of redeeming social value, but we're always saddened to see a, uh, an airport, uh, especially a close-in airport like this one, close. Yep. Uh, it's about 3,600 feet, if I remember right. Was it that and long? The, uh, the, uh, the strongest memory some people are going to have of Bader Field was the... Uh, the uh, accident not long ago when I believe it was a Brazilian flight crew in a uh, in a citation landed. It was Dutch, actually. Was it Dutch? I'm sorry. It was, it was foreign crew. Foreign crew, that's for sure. But they uh, landed long, downwind, ran off the end of the runway and wound up with the jet out in the water. And the water in that little bay is shallow enough there that the jet was visible after it got on the bottom. 
I've I've seen video that video. On YouTube. Yeah. yeah. I've seen that video. Uh, that was Bader Field, huh? Okay. That was Bader that Field. Was Bader the, Field. The, the jet. Um, and then the engine spooled up after about 10 minutes. The engine spooled minutes. up. It's not clear to me if there was anybody on board manipulating the throttles when those engines spooled up. Um, but uh, the jet was moving under its own power uh, with only about half the fuselage sticking out of the water. And yeah. that in and of itself... Uh, is a sight to behold. If if anyone has the, I don't have the link to that video, but if anyone, uh, I, I think I can dig YouTube. it up. I'll I'll put that one in the show notes as well. But uh, is, yeah. is that what you call a hydroplane? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> something like it, that. One one final note on that particular episode. Um, uh, at the time, uh, of course, it's airports closed since then. But at the time, Baderfield was closed to turbojet aircraft. That's that, right. was a, that was a citation that uh, obviously a turbojet aircraft that was trying to get in uh, to Bader. And I guess there are sometimes you have to understand that there are reasons for restrictions like that. And this is certainly one of those instances. Sometimes the word just didn't get through. Sometimes yep. there's always somebody who doesn't get the word. Well, sadly, Bader Field, the original airport, is now closed. So you know, moving on. Uh, what else you guys want to talk about? You got any other items here we should uh, cover before we finish up? Well, a couple of notes. Uh, uh, it's, it's football season again, and that means TFRs, our favorite uh, holes in the sky. Uh, anybody uh, have, having the misfortune on a Saturday to be flying over a college town or on a Sunday over a, a uh, an NFL stadium needs to be aware that those TFRs are likely in place for those events and uh, needs to plan accordingly, hopefully, before he or she gets in the airplane during the pre-flight phase. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, Up here in New England, in addition to football TFRs, we have uh, uh, the, the President Bush, the first President Bush, uh, has his home up in Kennebunkport. And, uh, and whenever the second President Bush visits his dad up in Maine, they inflate this 30-mile, 30 30-nautical-mile 30 uh, uh, restricted area around it, which of course extends down over Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and one of the very popular GA airports down in uh, in the, the northern edge of New Hampshire, the, the main border of New Hampshire, and you can get yourself tangled up in it really badly without, without uh, so these TFRs are, are, are kind of ugly, and you want to keep your head up. Make sure you get your uh, a good briefing and, and read the notams and so forth and so on. What else? Yeah, don't 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 be a victim of a don't don't be a victim of a uh, forced uh, formation flight review with an F-16. Because they're ugly. I mean, uh, fighter planes aside, I mean, even if you don't encounter a fighter plane, they're not kidding around. I mean, if if you bust one of these TFRs, it's not like oops, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, and they say, okay. It, it gets really yeah. nasty for, like, a long period of time. And I don't want to debate the, the necessity for these TFRs. I don't want to debate the politics underlying them. But it is clear that the people enforcing them have their marching orders. They are going to do the best job that they can of complying with those orders, and that means coming down on the pilot uh, involved in a, in a TFR violation like you've never seen before. Absolutely. Um, so. I know I know several people who have been involved in, in violations uh, of the Washington Aides since it was put into place, and uh, it is not a joking matter. Yeah. Uh, so forewarned is forearmed. Yep. What else? Dave, something you Fly want to boys. talk about here? Say again? Flyboys. Flyboys, Fly yeah. So Flyboys. You saw the movie? Okay, Airplane Junkies. <laughs> Here's a fix of action that, uh, in, in, in my mind, just, you know, Trump's top gun 
all the way around. First off, there's no afterburners. Second, <laughs> there's no uh, topless pretty boy beach volleyball. Sorry, girls. There is a little bit of, how you say, maybe stretching credulity a little bit in the uh, romantic interests of of our hero. But by and large, this is a fun movie to watch, historically accurate in terms of the uh, realism of the aircraft, the dogfighting, the challenges that they faced, the equipment that they used, the life that they lived. I didn't read any reviews on this movie until my wife and I treated ourselves to an afternoon matinee at a luxury box theater Saturday two weeks ago. And in afterward, thanks to uh, thanks to Jack sending me a, uh, a link, I read through about a dozen reviews. Most of them got it. That is, most of the reviewers picked up on what the movie was about. Director Tony Bill spent years and most of his own personal fortune trying to get this story made. It is the story of the 1916 American volunteers called the Lafayette Escadrille. They flew for the French against the Germans in World War One. Well, some of the reviewers didn't get it. And they questioned some of the historically accurate items in it. Like one reviewer poo-pooed the idea that any military unit on the front line would have a male lion as a pet mascot. Hmm. Well, you know, that does seem kind of off the wall, but 1916, France dominated uh, much of Africa. And no, the Lafayette Escadrille Squadron did not have a lion as a mascot. It had... Two, they were called whiskey and soda. Boys had a sense of humor. <laughs> My kind of guys. Another, re- another reviewer got a little cynical about the uh, the uh, political correctness of having a poor boy, a rich boy, a troubled boy, and a black boy all wrapped up in the same squadron in the front lines of the war in France. Particularly seemed doubtful that in 1916 you'd see any 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 black Americans flying anything anywhere. But the fact is that there was a black pilot with the Lafayette Escadrille. He flew multiple missions. He had multiple kills. So you like the movie? The movie is a ball. What about the uh, flying sequences? Do they look real? The or flying they... sequences will keep you on the edge of your seat. Three of the actors in the movie are actually pilots. One of them went to the trouble to become a pilot for the role so that as he was sitting in the back seat of the uh, airplane having uh, the motion picture camera pointed at him while the pilot flew the dogfight scenes, he would be able to, with a little rehearsal, maneuver the controls that he's not really you know, on accurately to reflect the maneuvers that the airplane was going through. It's extremely well done. It's a lot of fun. You'll enjoy the movie. That's great. And you're going to want to watch it on the biggest screen you can find with the best sound system you got because the gunfire, the engine sounds, comes from all directions, just like it would have in real life. That's great. All right, we've got, we got to try and wrap this up. Anything else? Any coming coming events you want to point out before Not we go? Not me. Fly safe and uh, have a great couple of weeks until our next podcast. Yeah. Dave, anything? any final words? Just shiny side up, everybody. And, uh, you know... Th- for a lot of uh, a lot of us here in North America, 
fall is probably one of the most inviting times of year to go up for a, no good reason other than to just catch the scenery. So get out and do it before those days arrive when you're looking out the window at gray skies and wishing that you'd gone. Do it now. Thank you very much, Jeb Burnside, Editor-in-Chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Uh, his website is uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com. Dave Higdon, aviation photographer, freelance writer, davehigdon.com. I'm Jack Hodgson, jackhodgson.com. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Get back in your airplanes and off we go. You can email your suggestions and feedback about this podcast to podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com. Now slow it down and land on the ground. And when you get out, you're going to spin all around.